Psalm 133. How good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Let's pray together. Father, what a wonderful psalm this is, a celebration of the unity of your people. And as we gather here this morning, Lord, we want to celebrate the togetherness that we have because we are one in Christ. And so, Father, would you help us to celebrate Lord, and as we think about this idea of unity, it's probably easy for us to start to maybe point fingers at those in our lives that haven't been so kind or unified. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to look inwards this morning, search our hearts, see if there's any wicked way in ours, and make us look more like your son, Jesus. Father, would you help us to be one as a church? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The psalm, which is, of course, very short, it tells us that unity is a very, very precious thing. Unity is a prized commodity. But it also is so very fragile. It always seems to be just beyond our reach, never lasting, always elusive. We long for unity when we hear about the brutal ISIS attacks in northern Iraq. We long for unity when we hear of another divorce that has ripped apart a family. We long for unity when we hear about another political power being overthrown somewhere on this earth. We long for unity when we hear of another church that splits because of sin. Where are we going to find real, lasting unity? We're not going to find it at world peace councils or at the United Nations. We're not going to find it on the floor of the U.S. Congress. We're not going to find it even at Martin Luther King Day celebrations. The smartest, the brightest, the most loving human beings, we can't create real unity. We certainly cannot sustain unity. History has shown this. So where are we going to find unity? What about the church? What about the church? This is the place where unity should be experienced. If there's any place on earth where unity should be experienced, where peace should be experienced, it should be the church. You've got Jesus. You've got some fairly nice people. You've got rules that kind of give us boundaries and and give us direction. This is where unity should be found. But we don't always experience peace in the church, do we? Even within the church, you can experience 
discrimination and gossip and slander and clicks and discord and all forms of divisiveness and camps that form around certain causes and camps that form around certain leaders, even in the church. George Verwer, he's the founder of Operation Mobilization, which is a a big missions organization. He's traveled to over 400 churches in any given year. He preaches, he, he interacts with these churches. And somebody asked him recently, what have you noticed about the global church? As you've traveled all over the world, what do you notice about the global church? And this is what he said. To see a church at peace is like an oasis in the desert. It's so rare. And what's the number one reason missionaries today leave the mission field? Do you know? It's not persecution. It's not money. It's they can't get along with their team. That's the number one reason missionaries leave the field today. Disunity. Now, David, who is the author of this psalm we just read, he knew all about division in God's people. In fact, you'd think uh, after he slayed Goliath, he won this great victory, a whole nation, uh, King Saul would rally around him and unify because of this great victory. But just the opposite thing happened, you remember? Instead of unity and peace, this great victory brought David jealousy from King Saul. Because remember, the women, they were singing Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And this began a season where David saw how jealousy could not only pull apart a family, it it could eventually pull apart, it would eventually pull apart a kingdom. And so David ran out of the king's palace. He saw refuge in the wilderness. He got involved in a long civil war in Israel's history. David knew firsthand the horrors of dissension and jealousy and bitterness and strife. He knew firsthand. He walked through all of that. But then, in God's wonderful providence, something happened. God finally brought Israel together. You can read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 5. He finally brought Israel. His people together. No human being could have brought that country together. Only God. And it's in that context that David thought about the blessings that flow from unity. He experienced so much division in his life, but now finally God's people could dwell together in unity. And so it's in that context he wrote this psalm. He penned This psalm, which is a great celebration of unity within God's people. Let's look at our passage now. You probably noticed as I read this passage, it's broken down into two parts. The main idea is in verse 1, which is a celebratory statement of peace and unity. And then in verses 2 and 3, we find two pictures that kind of reinforce and bolster the main idea in verse 1. Okay, so let's look at verse 1. The first blessing of unity we see in verse 1. He says that unity is good and pleasant. Good speaks of the moral character of unity. It has an intrinsic quality that is good and right. 
You know, it's, it's the way things ought to be. It's the way God intended for everything to be. It's the way marriages and families ought to be. It's what growth groups and ministries ought to experience. It's what the church and nations ought to experience. Unity. More than just good, he says it's pleasant. Unity is pleasant. It brings pleasure. It brings pleasure to God. It brings pleasure to us when we experience it. Unity is very attractive. Unity is very enjoyable, isn't it? And that's why we long for it, whether that's within a a marriage or a family or a, a church or a nation. We long for unity because it brings us pleasure. It's pleasant. The second blessing, notice in verse 2. Here's the first picture of unity. The goodness and the pleasantness of unity is like oil. Sounds kind of weird. Oil, specifically at Aaron's ordination into the priesthood. Okay, this was a particular moment in Israel's history. You can read about it in Leviticus chapter 8. This was a sacred moment for the people of God because it pointed to the time when the priesthood and the tabernacle were established for God's people. So picture this, okay? Picture, picture the entire nation of Israel. It's about two million people at the time gathering together to witness this special oil being poured out on Aaron. And so Moses is there standing before all of God's people. And Aaron is likely kneeling before Moses. And he's got these beautiful new white robes. And he has this beautiful breastplate over his chest. And then Moses slowly pours this very sacred oil, very fragrant oil over his head. And it runs down his cheeks, onto his collar, down his robes. This is a picture of blessing and abundance and favor. This moment initiated a new era in Israel's history because through this man Aaron and his sons, other priests, through this man Aaron and his sons, God's people could now tabernacle with him. They could now be with God. They could now enjoy God's favor with the right sacrifices the right offerings, they can now enjoy God's presence. Nothing like this was ever established before, and therefore, this was, for Israel, a very special, sacred moment. Now, what David is trying to say is that unity is sacred and precious, just like the preciousness of this oil. Just like the sacred, precious moment when this oil was being poured out. It's something to be prized. Unity is something to be uh, treasured. It's something to, to be held in high esteem. Just like they treasure this beautiful ordination moment, we should treasure and cherish the unity of God's people. No one has ever overestimated the blessings of peace. But unity can be easily taken away. It can be easily broken apart. It, it, it is so very fragile. And that's because it's sacred. The third blessing, look at verse 3. The third blessing of unity 
is found in verse 3. The goodness and the pleasantness of unity is like dew, mountain dew. Dew from Mount Hermon in particular. It's the, the northern, northernmost mountain in the land of Palestine. And it was known for its copious dews, its, its heavy rains. And as a result of its seasonal rains, the rest of the dry, arid land of Palestine was able to flourish. Some of you may have been to uh, Israel. I've been to Israel. I've had the privilege of going there. And uh, you'll, you know it's very dry. It's very arid. And so Mount Hermon in the north, the moisture, the dew that came from this mountain was able to, to seep down into the lower regions and make the land grow and flourish. In God's providence, he caused rains to come and give moisture to the rest of the land. Now, the picture here is one of flourishing and vitality and growth. That is what unity does. Just like the dew from Mount Hermon brings life to Palestine, so the unity of God's people brings life. It brings vitality. It brings strength. You take away unity, and you're taking the very life of the church away. Right? Now look at the last sentence in verse 3. Last sentence in verse 3. For there the Lord bestows his blessing. For there, that's Mount Zion, which is the the mountain where Jerusalem uh, was placed. So Jerusalem, he's saying, from there, Jerusalem is the place of unity in Israel. For there... Jerusalem, the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Now, what David is saying is that from the place of unity, from Jerusalem, God blesses outwards. He blesses outwards. Unity overflows and multiplies into new blessings, specifically the blessing of life forevermore. When Jerusalem is unified, then blessings go out. When Jerusalem is not unified, blessings go nowhere. When the church is unified, blessings go out. When the church is not unified, there are no blessings of life that go out. And therefore, if there's anything, brothers and sisters, if there's anything we should fight for within this church, it ought to be unity. If we, want our, if we want to see our church overflow with blessings on the South Shore, if we want to see our marriage overflow with blessings onto our kids, if we want to see our ministry teams and growth groups and elder boards and deacon boards overflow with blessing onto this church, then we've got to go hard after unity and peace. So let's together prioritize unity and peace in our church. Let's do this. Let's cultivate it, let's pray for it, and we will see God bring us blessing and life forevermore. How good it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. Amen? But the great irony of Psalm 133 is that David himself would destroy this peace. A little glance over the balcony. A beautiful woman, an adulterous affair, deception, murder, would destroy this peace. 
His choices would lead the Lord to say through the prophet Nathan, the sword will never depart from your house, David. Remember that? You, you had peace, David, but it's over. It's over. And so strife and division and war came back not only into David's family, but back into Israel. David disrupted the thing that he valued so much. And only Jesus could give it back. Only Jesus would bring peace back to his people. On the same mountain, in the same city, 1,000 years later, Jesus would die to give peace. And let me show you this in Ephesians chapter 2. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Uh, it's page 1,157 in your pew Bible. Ephesians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away and have been brought, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he, Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made the two, that's Jew and Gentile, who has made the two one, And has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away. And peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Now this is an incredibly dense, rich passage. And we don't have time to, you know, plumb its depths. But let me just point out a couple things in this passage that relate to Psalm 133 and this idea of unity. First, verse 14, Jesus makes peace. It says that Jesus himself is our peace, but it also says that Jesus creates peace. And this means that unity is not something that we can create. It's a gift. It's a gift from God through Jesus. It's something we are called to preserve, but not called to create. Jesus makes peace through his death on the cross. That's what this passage says. Because at the foot of the cross, think with me now, At the foot of the cross, there is not a rich person or a poor person. There's not man or woman. There's not young or old, good-looking or ugly. Uh, At the foot of the cross, there's not annoying or charming, educated or uneducated. There's not broken or put together. At the foot of the cross, we are all equal. At the foot of the cross... We are equally sinners before a holy and righteous God. Now, the second thing that we see in this passage is that Jesus makes unity. Yes, through the cross, but he makes unity by giving us a new 
family identity. Now look at verse 15 and 16 with me. By abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, and here it is, the sentence, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them, so all the different kinds of people, in this case Jew and Gentile, reconcile both of them to God through the cross. Now this is, this is really profound. Jesus not only makes peace, but he creates a new humanity. One man, one body. And so now our fundamental identity is oneness with Christ and through Christ, oneness with one another. This is our core identity now. I'm a a big Michigan football fan. Some of you know that. I know this is not a big college sports crew here. You have to bear with me. Uh, Bo Schembechler, some of you may have heard of him. He was a, he was a coach at Michigan um, for about 20 years in the 70s and 80s. And uh, just a wonderful coach, very well respected. And uh, he, he gave in 1983 uh, a very inspiring speech to his team before one of the games. And let me read you part of his speech. No man is more important than the team. No coach is more important than the team. The team, the team, the team. And if we think that way, all of us together, everything that we do will have a great impact. I think this captures some of the attitude that the church should have as well. Now, it's, it's hard for us to think this way in today's hyper-individualized culture where the main unit of existence is the self. It's me. But Jesus, we just read this, Jesus ushers in a new age where our sense of being has radically changed from me to we. We have a new corporate identity. The church, the church, the church. That's our identity. That's who we are now. That's our primary identity. Now, to close um, our time together, I want to give you four ways to live out of this new corporate identity. We're going to get very practical now. Four ways to live out of this uh, new corporate identity. Here's the first way. Learn to think we and not I. Learn to think we and not I. Uh, sometimes I, I come home from a, a long day of work and, and I'm tired and I'm grumpy. And, you know, I look around the house and there's, you know, a little bit of a mess in the kitchen or some laundry on the bed that hasn't been done. And, you know, it's pretty normal. And, uh, of course, because I'm grumpy and tired, I get a bad attitude. But because I am one with my wife, Uniquely in marriage, but because I'm one with my wife through Christ, I need to think differently. I need to think we and not I. So that's not just her mess. That's my mess. Those aren't just her tasks. That's our tasks, right? And therefore, not only should I be more patient, but I should find ways to help her accomplish our tasks, And we can apply this thinking broadly as we think about the local church as well. 
Instead of competing with a brother who has been blessed financially or socially, enjoy his blessing as your own blessing. Because you're one, one in Christ. Enjoy his blessing as your own blessing. Celebrate with him. Rejoice with him because his joy is your joy. Rather than uh, withdrawing from a sister who is terribly hurting because of some crisis situation, and you think, okay, someone else is going to take care of this. I'll, I'll pray for her. Rather than doing that, get into the mess with this sister because her mess is your mess. Her pain is your pain. And if you think this way, you're not going to find it hard to weep with her when she weeps. And maybe you'll stop giving premature advice. I'm talking about here is it's not just a behavioral change or even just a perspective shift, even though it feels like that. What we're talking about here is an ontological, uh, fundamental difference. When you become a Christian, you trade in the I for a we. That's who you now are. And it's time for us as a church to live out of that corporate identity. It's not just my time. It's not just my money. It's not just my resources. It's not just my friends. It's our time, our friends, our resources, our money to be used together for the glory of Christ, for the spread of the gospel, for the good of this church. What would it look like, South Shore Baptist Church, if we together embraced a radical we orientation than a worldly I orientation? Would we experience a deeper, more more profound unity and love in this church? Absolutely. We absolutely would. That's number one. Number two, show equal concern for one another. Show equal concern for one another. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 25. You don't have to turn there, but listen. God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. Each member of a local church, says Paul, should show equal concern for each other. That's easy for us to show concern to people in this church, right? To those we like, to those who are like us, to those we have a lot in common with. That's, that's really easy. We do that all the time. That's very natural for us. To everyone else, we're, we're nice enough. We're not, we're not mean. We don't yell at them. We may avoid a few people. But our fundamental identity has changed from I to we. And so we're not the fingers of Christ over here hanging out and the, the toes of Christ of, you know, hanging out over here and the ears are, are doing their own thing over there. That's not who we are anymore. That's how the world functions. The church shows equal concern. And that means crossing barriers, barriers of every kind, whether it's race or class. So church, um, how often do you have meaningful contact with church members working in an industry other than your own? How often do we engage church with our Cambodian brothers and sisters who are here with us? 
Families and couples, do you seek out and welcome singles into your home? Singles. Do you make space in your life and heart for families and kids? God meant for us to experience a broad cross-section of the body of Christ. He meant for us to interact with, to have fellowship with, to care for and serve all different kinds of people, not just our favorites, not just those who are just like us. And I know this isn't easy. It's, It's not easy for me. I'm sure it's not easy for you. But it's our fundamental identity now. So let me give you a little challenge for this week. Make it your goal this week to reach out and connect with one person who is not like you. To connect meaningfully with someone in this church that isn't like you. Make it your goal. Number three, kill sin. Kill sin. King David, he didn't kill sin. And it cost him his family, and in some ways, the nation. Sin totally massacres families. Sin totally massacres unity. There are the respectable kinds of sins like gossip and slander and nosiness. Pulls apart unity. There are the more obvious ones like adultery, you know, that pulls apart families. And then there are the so-called private sins like pornography or lust or pride or greed or selfishness that, you know, we kind of nurture a little bit and we don't quite kill. And we think that they are separate because they're happening behind closed doors. It's not true. No sin is ever private. Every sin we commit does damage to the very thing that Jesus died for, his beautiful bride, the church. I can think of one Christian brother who knows very, very well about this idea of sin messing with unity. His self-centeredness and workaholism over the course of many years almost resulted in divorce. But slowly and by God's grace, he turned from his sins, he repented, he sought help, He found relief. He found God's mercy and grace. And their marriage, which was on the verge of divorce, slowly began to be whole and happy and uh, unified. Sin destroys unity, and only holiness can cultivate it. So, brothers and sisters, take sin seriously. Do not excuse sin away. Do not try to manage it or do damage control. Rather, by the Spirit's power, kill sin. You are not only fighting for your own holiness, you are fighting for the unity of this church. And fourth, finally, enjoy your unity with Christ. Enjoy your oneness with Christ. Oneness with one another begins with oneness with Christ. Thomas Manton, a 17th century Puritan, he described it like this. He said, the union of the saints when they are together depends on their communion with God when they are alone. That's so true. 
It's so true. Uh, have you ever uh, seen a Christian married couple, have you ever seen a Christian couple argue in front of you? Maybe it was at, a, I don't know, family reunion or something like that. It's a little awkward, but, you know, there they are. Um, try this next time you see this argument. You know, interrupt the conversation and ask the husband, Hey, Bob, are you uh, walking with God today? Uh, they're going to be a little flustered, you know, and maybe he'll turn to you and say, You know what? I had a rich, epic, wonderful, quiet time this morning. I, you know, I read the Bible for 30 minutes, and then I prayed for 20 minutes. It was so good, but I'll get back to you. I need to continue yelling at my wife now. <laughs> right, that, that doesn't, it doesn't make sense. You can't walk in the Spirit one moment and then turn around and act like a jerk. It doesn't drive. So one way to fight for unity is simply to walk closely with your God to enjoy your oneness with Jesus. Enjoy it. Cultivate a rich fellowship with Jesus every day because the vertical relationship with him directly impacts the horizontal relationships in this church. All right, let's summarize what we've discussed so far. Unity is good and pleasant. Unity is sacred but fragile. Unity brings life. And as we apply this passage and pull it forward to the New Testament age to today, we saw that Jesus is the one who creates the unity through the cross and by giving us a new common identity, which is the family of God. And then we just looked at four practical challenges that arise out of that corporate reality. Now, there's maybe some here who don't know peace. You walked into this church this morning and your heart is not at peace. Maybe someone here this morning isn't right with God. Let me tell you, Jesus is your only peace. Jesus is the only way you can be reconciled to God because that's why he came. He came to die on the cross for sinners so that you can have peace with God. But he also came to die on the cross to reconcile us to each other so that you can start to have peace within the church. Have you repented, friends? Have you repented of your sins? Have you given yourself to Jesus? Have you turned from your sins? Have you made Jesus your highest treasure, your greatest joy? Let today be that day where you turn from your sins and you turn to Christ, who is your peace. And if you do that, if you, if, you, if you repent, if you believe, you can experience the peace of God in your heart and you can begin to experience peace with others within a church. Because it's the church. The church is the only place on this side of heaven where you can experience real lasting peace. And that's not because of us, that's because of Jesus. How good it is, how good it is, brothers and sisters. How pleasant it is, brothers and sisters, when we dwell together in unity. Let's pray.
Maybe you've got sin in your heart towards people in this church. Maybe you're partial towards some or you uh, foster cliques or you gossip. Would you take a few moments now to quietly confess your sins to the Lord and receive the forgiveness of Jesus? Maybe you're listening to this message and you're thinking about one or two Christians in your life that you have never reconciled with. It's been months, perhaps years. Let me encourage you to move towards them in love and to reconcile. Take a moment to pray about this. Talk to God about this. Father, we come before you and we are so thrilled that we can experience this beautiful gift that you've given us through your son, Jesus, that we can be one. Thank you. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the blessings, the manifold blessings that flow out of this beautiful gift of unity, life. Father, would you help this church to embrace our corporate identity and make it primary? Would you help us to preserve the unity of the saints in this church? Would you help us to kill sin? Would you help us to show equal concern to one another, to think we more than we think I? We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.